a listener production. I watched a group of young boys, probably about eight years old, playing a bit of rough and tumble on the sand the other day, and there happened to be a similar-aged little girl in the group. Now, us parents were up on the balcony having a few wines overlooking the beach where this game was occurring. It started out as this kind of light and fun game, but I noticed over a few minutes the girl seemed to be the one who was in you know, being pushed into the middle of the circle where the boys were pushing her around and then, you know, they'd kind of push her down to the ground and a few would jump on her in the sand. And she was laughing. They were all laughing. But the pushes were getting harder and harder and the boys were jumping on her more and more stacks on. So I ended up yelling down to the kids to stop. But it got me thinking, how far would they have gone? How far would they have pushed that game? And why was the girl the main one that was singled out? And should those boys have been behaving in a more respectful way, even at that young age? This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips. It's a strange thought, but domestic and sexual abuse perpetrators were boys once. Possibly just as sweet as our own boys. But somewhere in their journey to manhood, their views towards women, violence, or themselves became so distorted, they ended up performing hideous crimes and probably claiming innocence for them as well. So where did this toxic masculinity stem from? What are the signs? And what can we do as parents to prevent the kids around us from falling prey? Hunter Johnson is the co-founder and CEO of The Man Cave, a preventative mental health and emotional intelligence charity, which has facilitated over 20,000 schoolboys through its workshops, its academy, digital and research programs, which are all designed to empower boys to become great men. Hunter is such a fascinating guy, with a background in emotional intelligence, facilitation and social entrepreneurship. His work has led him to speak around the world, including in the UK, where he was named by the Queen, like literally by the Queen, a 2018 Queen's Young Leader. Hunter has been recognised as a finalist for the 2020 Young Australian of the Year Awards in Victoria and a 2018 winner of the EY Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Hunter, what a privilege it is to speak to you today. Hi, Amelia. So excited to be here with you. How would you describe toxic masculinity and what are the signs that certain boys might be falling prey to it? It's a pretty loaded term, isn't it? Toxic (laughs) masculinity. Oh my goodness. Very negative. And, you know, pretty divisive too. So I think I'll start with what it's not. So we're not saying masculinity is toxic. I think that's the first thing. I think often, you know, we find this working, you know, on the front line with hundreds of boys every week that they feel unfairly judged. Because in their world, in their lives, their struggles have been really hard to them and suddenly they're now being labelled as toxic. Yeah, I get that. When they've stepped into a script of masculinity that we, as their parents, their role models of society, has given them and they're suddenly the ones in trouble. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a confusing time for even as us as adults, let alone, you know, the developing mind of a, a teenage boy. So I think that's the first thing. We're not saying all masculinity is toxic. But when we're talking about toxic masculinity specifically, we're saying there are certain attitudes, beliefs that are probably a little outdated and very traditional that are very limiting and narrow for the masculine experience. So some of the the qualities would be 
very misogynistic behaviour, very homophobic behaviour, uh, emotional repression, rigid gender norms, traditionally big believers in power and entitlement, and also at some points very ignorant to their own privilege. And I think that's the really interesting thing in this whole conversation is often, you know, privilege is invisible to those who have it. And yeah. so that's kind of the, the bigger journey is how do you educate particularly young men that they're a part of a system that they've inherited and by being in that system and having, you know, this, how would I say it, a, almost like a backpack of unearned assets that help you get through the world, that you're not a bad person for having that. But now that we've cultivated some self-awareness in you, are you going to be someone that chooses to contribute to systems of inequality or chooses to challenge them? And, you know, every time we've done that with the teenage boys, we've created an environment that had psychological safety. They've stepped in and above and beyond want to be amazing young men. That's incredible. And I can't wait to get to our chat in a moment around how you actually do that because I'm so fascinated. I just imagine you walking in a room of, you know, anywhere from 20 to 150 boys all, you know, (laughs) chest proud and how you break that down and break that through for them. I've heard you talk about replacing toxic masculinity with healthy masculinity. Can you describe your views and your ideas of what healthy masculinity is? Yeah, I can. I think the, the comment I'll also say about toxic masculinity is the way that I've really started to think about it is it's more generational trauma. And if we think about the models of manhood that we've got right now that are present in society, yeah. it's very much the post-World War II man, which is to be strong, be stoic, yeah. deal with it yourself, be the provider. Yeah, She'll be right, mate. Bottle up your feelings. Bottle it up. You know, have another, you know, whiskey by the fire. Yeah, you wow. Know, it's like, you know, we <laughs> laugh, but that's the marketing, that the stories that yeah. we're being told, whether it's, you know, on Netflix or the narratives we hear in public discourse. And so I just wanted to add that in. It's like yeah. if we look at it through the lens of hurt people hurt people, really. Yeah. And so it's if we come back that these are boys or men doing the best with the tools they have, and we're at a point in time where we need to evolve, that we need to shed some of the, the, the models around being a man that we've inherited and create a new rule for what it means to be a masculinity. And for me, that lies in authenticity. So having your own values, your own moral compass that aligns to what's the person you want to be, irrespective of your gender that you identify with. And so for me, you know, if we want to label the buzzword healthy masculinity yeah. in there, I'm happy to roll with that. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that's just the qualities of a flourishing human being. You know, they have resilience, they have adaptability, they have kindness, they have generosity. Some days they can be really stoic and strong. The next day they can shed a tear and be vulnerable and ask for help. Yeah. It's really about range and how do we create pockets of environments where boys can develop their range, where, you know, they might need to really hold themselves strong, but, you know, the next moment they might need to let some emotion out. The way, again, the language we use is developing the emotional muscle. So I don't just go to the gym and suddenly I looking beach fit, you know, it takes time and time again, similar to riding a bike, learning a new language. Our emotional range is very similar. And what we do with the mag, particularly with teenage boys, is give them language uh, to first of all self-identify with how they're feeling and thereby develop empathy for others and be able to support others. So let's talk about how they are feeling. Mm. You're like a walking research project. You get to, I mean, you've been in front of 20,000 boys so far. I'm sure that number's growing every week. What are some of the common pain points and issues that they're struggling with? Well, it's a very confusing time to be a man. 
you know, on one hand, again, society is showing us through the stories that we tell our young men, be strong and be stoic, be the provider. But now the other narrative is there, you know, which is be vulnerable, cry more often, give up some of your power, um, your privilege, so you don't deserve that opportunity. Again, if we're adults trying to navigate that. It's, it's confusing even hearing you saying that now. Like, how does a teenage boy coming into manhood navigate that? Plus, he's just gone from being the king of the classroom in year six to mm. being, you know, the small fish in the big pond in year seven and up. And he's navigating all those other massive changes of high school. And that's the challenge. You know, if you think about high school as well, it's about a social hierarchy. And as yeah. much as it's scary to admit it, it's about surviving that social hierarchy. And so often what we find with these teenage boys, particularly in the earlier years, they trade their authenticity for attachment. What to, do you mean the, by that? To the group. So right. the, with the, the developing teenage brain, what we found is that all they want to do is belong, whether they're conscious of it or not. And so at times, if they step into their authentic self and that gets rejected, Oh, that hurts. That hurts. It's like that moment in class where, yes. you know, you're bold enough to put your hand up and the teacher comes to you, you say the wrong thing, everyone laughs at you. Oh. What do you learn in that moment? Yeah. Don't put your hand up. And so we see that play out in social situations in high school all the time. And so, again, you've got, you know, developing minds, developing bodies, a school culture which they step into as these, you know, innocent boys at age 12, they're suddenly thrust into an environment with 18-year-olds who are making adult-like decisions, probably from the age of 14, if we're honest. Yeah. And you've got a child trying to find his identity inside of all of that when, you know, the parents are probably working really hard, teachers are overworked, under-resourced, and they only really have transactional relationships with their students. And suddenly we've got these teenage boys who are now being labelled as toxic. And so we're starting to see a massive backlash from these boys who don't understand that when the labelling of toxic masculinity comes in, that they're associating their identity to that. And so they feel confused. And yep. when they feel confused, they feel attacked. And when they feel attacked, they rebel and they push back. Yeah, or they retreat and become reclusive or you know, disappear into their rooms or into their games or their screens or whatever. Do you see that? Do you see that you've got the child that kind of you know, they've lost their sparkle and disappeared or you've got the bully or the the rebellious one that is the one that says, well, hang on a minute, you know, it isn't fair and that's where you start to see some of those more fringe and extreme groups forming. Yeah, like in, in a man cave context, we're spending so much time with groups. We're able to kind of distinguish the group dynamics and, and understand, you know, the, the different archetypes that we're going to encounter in a classroom setting. So there yeah. might be what are they? the jock that, you know, who just wants power, that is the king of banter, that, um, <laughs> you know, doesn't want, like authority. But we know if, if we can, you know, what we'll call like flip the alpha, yep. if we get the alpha on side and challenge them and mobilise their leadership skills for good, then they take the group with them. But there might also be the kid who's the quiet observer, who's the introvert, but you know when you ask them a the question, they'll drop some gold. Yeah. All the way to the kid who's the oversharer. You know, where you walk in and you're like, man, this kid is awesome. Like, yeah, keep coming back to him. And then you just realise that it's just a train. And you, oh, you just no. have to go, okay, I love how your brain works, mate, but I'm just going to share it around to the group today. <laughs> and, you know, just to put in context, we've had stories of, you know, boys who we've been warned about saying, you know, if he's a bad kid, if he's any trouble, just kick him out, it's fine. 
Oh. And we walk in and, you know, the, the only kid who's not in school uniform, he's got a rat's tail that he's sucking on, kind of <laughs> smells like smoke a bit. He's 14 <laughs> and going, oh, my God. I actually remember we're at the school in Lilydale and um, this kid, we'll call him Declan, walk in, exactly that kid. And uh, one of our facilitators was introducing himself and Declan just yells out, gay, as oh, loud as you can hear it. You're joking. Hits off the whole room like boys. And the best thing about working with teenage boys is they have the best bullshit detectors in the world. <laughs> so they'll sniff you out a mile yeah. away. Um, yep. They sniff fear a mile away. Oh, so yeah. if you show any of that, they'll jump at it. But they also respect courage and authenticity. Okay. And so this guy yells out, gay, as loud as he can. The room kicks off and uh, one of our facilitators it kind of triggered him a bit because he was called gay in high school. Yeah, right. And so I remember just jumping in and being like, hey, man, my guess is your name is Declan. Would that be right? <laughs> anyway, the whole crowd bursts out laughing, the boys, and we come back to him and go, my guess is that you're a bit of a troublemaker. You probably get kicked out all the time. People probably don't mess with you. You're a bit of a tough guy. Is that fair? And he's kind of sitting there and goes, maybe. And everyone laughs around him. I just go, but my other bet is you probably have enormous leadership potential and you probably use that for entertainment purposes most of the time. And today I'm going to give you a chance to flex that muscle, that leadership potential in a completely different way. In fact, who'd like to see that side of Declan? You know, 49 hands go up in the air, go, there's your invitation, pal. And over the course of the day, he opens up about his life story. You know, his dad suicided a year earlier. So he dropped out of school for eight months, started smoking weed, started then getting into the heavier stuff. His mum kicked him out, got taken a juvie. Mum took him out of juvie, went to rehab. They gave him pills for his ADHD that made him anxious, so they gave him pills for his anxiety. He was on 10 pills a day, got off that. Eight months later, he's now back in the classroom, sitting next to 14-year-olds who haven't yet hit puberty, and this kid has lived like a rock star's life. Wow. And this is the first time that he's been ever able to share that story, and it's a showstopper. So suddenly these boys who have, you know, judged him or he's judged them are sitting there with tears in their eyes. He shares his story, and I go, who knew this about Declan? No hands in the air. And I go, who's got enormous respect for this guy right now? 49 hands go in the air. And I look at his teachers in the background and their jaws are dropped. Wow. And I go, They didn't know any of that either. Because they're judging the kid, yeah. not on the person, but because of his behaviour. Yeah. And he's doing the best with what he's Rap got. Sheet. Anyway, we come back, we have multiple sessions with that school and, you know, we come back and he's now in leadership positions at the school because he was finally given a chance to be seen. And it's like, how do we create pockets like that of authenticity where people can share their story where the kid who is the bully or, you know, the nerd or whatever label we want to give actually get to show their authentic self and the courage inside of that gets rewarded by the group, that becomes the new culture. And we just don't see that often in high school because they're so busy trying to keep their masks on, trying to survive and stay in the social hierarchy. It surprises me with these kids. They can have spent years and years in the same friendship circles, but they've never actually had authentic conversations with each other. Absolutely. We, countless times I could tell you that, you know, boys have been like, this bloke's been my best mate for five years and I just learned more about him in five minutes. And often what we find is, first of all, boys have these deeply rich emotional lives, but they're just seeking either the permission, the language or the space to lean into it. Yeah, the safety, you know, as you said earlier, not to be ridiculed or laughed at when they do have a vulnerable moment. And also, if there is laughter because it's so unfamiliar for the group, not making people wrong about it. It's kind of, yeah, it's, we kind of laugh because we're nervous. We don't have conversations like this. So next time my invitation to you was just try to catch that laughter because what might be the impact on that young man who's just shared something really powerfully? 
So suddenly there's a teachable moment in that opposed to you're naughty, don't do that. And then, you know, as teenagers, if you're told not to do something, what do you do? You go yeah, and do of it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's what their brains are designed right. to do. That's what I did growing up. As a parent, how can we, I mean, your program is just so transformational. As a parent, what cues and learnings can we take from your program that we can bring home and support our teenage boys with? Yeah, the ultimate thing is be a role model. It's do your own personal work. And, you know, that's even a privilege to be able to reflect on yourself like that. But it's, it comes down to it because we can tell our kids all the wisdom in the world, but they'll mimic what they see. And so I think being a role model, owning your insecurities, your where you've been inauthentic, but also things that you're proud of. And so I think starting at home, the family values are incredibly important and even introducing language around family values. You know, yeah. I think about, I was a pretty naughty kid and I... Are, no, yeah, I, you have such a cheeky smile. I can... Can you imagine? If, yeah, yeah. I was like Declan. Like, yeah. you know... Well, was, I love yeah. on your website, on the Man Cave, on your About page, you've got your photo of you now, but I love with all your team members, you've also got their um, childhood school photos. I was like, that is the face of a cheeky kid. <laughs> I think even in that bio, it says, uh, I got 27 detentions in one year, including a detention whilst on detention. Have you apologised to your mother? I have. I Good. also, the year after school, I actually sent an email to all my teachers saying, <laughs> I'm sorry and thank you, you know. But but that's the the beauty. Like I just, you know, and this comes back to a lot of the people that work with us. We're like, we just wish we had someone that could sit us down and go, yeah. hey, I see the track you're going on. And it kind of makes sense. But also, I know there's so much more for you. And yeah. I'm going to be that non-authoritative figure that can kind of just open the door, hold space for you challenge you in a really loving and constructive way and support you to get to whatever it is you want to achieve. But back to your question yes. around parents. Yes. I think particularly with teenage boys or, you know, kind of that emerging tween boy, sharing of your personal stories of what life was like when you were their age is incredibly important. Can I just jump in here, both mums and dads? Yes. So we're talking about boys, but it's equally important for mums and dads to do this. Yes, absolutely. And the most important thing about this is it's not about giving advice mm-hmm. or philosophizing or anything of that nature. Okay. The wonderful thing about a story that you can tell a story to a five-year-old, 15-year-old, 55, 95-year-old is that the person receiving that story can extract a certain set of principles, lessons, and morals that are relevant to their life stage. And so that cue, that seed that's planted might grow 10 years later, but that'll be a moment in time That'll be relevant to the life experience of that person. So when you're sharing a story, just share genuinely, what was your life like when you were 13? Mm. What did you struggle with? What was your relationship with your parents like? And then again, the caveat being don't, you know, come back and say, and that's why they'll get the bit they need to get. Okay. The next piece for me is um, often this generation know they're very loved because um, their parents' generation didn't get told they were loved a lot. And so they get smothered with love. One of the most powerful things that you can tell a young person of this generation is you're proud of them. Okay. And and you're proud of not what they've done, but you're proud of who they are as a person. Yeah, that's a really clear distinction that I know I personally struggle with. For some reason, I'm always rewarding achievements Mm. of my kids and I catch myself doing it. You've got to find you're proud of the person they are, but I I struggle with that. I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) In that moment, okay, what can I be proud about? Like when, you know, they come home with an award or they've yeah. done a great achievement, it's so easy. Yeah. But you're saying it's got to be something that is 
authentic to them rather than something that they have done. It's, and it's their traits as a person, you know, yeah. and I think the, the distinction there is are we validating their performance or validating their person? Yeah, okay. And it's, you know, their kindness, their generosity. Yeah. You know, I saw how you looked after your sister the other day. I just want to say I love that part of you. It's just such a gift. And also my invitation is if you know that's something you do, name that with them. You know, it's, and that's the power of authenticity is when we are authentic, you yeah. know, it's the Brené Brown thing. It's like mm. vulnerability brings connection and connection builds trust and purpose. And so it's like, you know, hey, my child's name, I've noticed that when I'm, you know, wanting to say nice things to you, I'm saying it about your performance, but I really want to say it about who you are. And by the way, I love you and that's what I want to get better at. Yeah, okay. You know, like that's just such a, if I heard that as a kid, I thought mm. my parent is awesome. But the most powerful thing about that is that becomes a moment when they are a parent that they reflect back on. Yeah. And that's the thing about values. They come and kind of flourish at different points in our life. Touch on what you said earlier about being a good role model. Mm. That scares me (laughs) because 90% of the way us parents behave is intuitive. Mm. Uh, We don't even realize we're doing it. What are some little quick warning signs that we might just catch ourselves? Oh, we're falling prey to that 1950s, you know, toughen up mentality you know, I'm going to throw a really obvious one out there is like, don't be a crybaby, mm. for example. Yeah. Is it just kind of just observing your language? Like, how do we, I might be doing it and not even realize I'm doing it. Or my husband who, my husband fits that alpha male personality. He went to a competitive all boys boarding school. He was in the first for basketball. Like he fits that personality type. What if he's offloading all that generational trauma onto the children? And that, that's why we are in the position we are in. Uh, you know, whether it's, honestly, if we look at the data, whether it's mental health or family violence, it's because the stories we've inherited and the conditioning we've inherited yeah. is resulting in such a high rates of mental illness, such high rates of sexual abuse, such high rates of family violence. Like, I don't know what bigger call to action we need. I 100% agree. Than our child's well-being. Like, yeah. if that is not a big enough wake-up call, like, I don't know what more there we can do. And so I think it's, as you know, someone who's in a partnership with someone, it's you've got to find someone you can grow together. And yeah. it's important to find someone where you can go to the edge, but you can yeah. also come back to the center and you've got mm-hmm. that trust. And I think if you can support each other to go to your own edges, you know, look at your life story, what were the core stories that you told yourself about yourself all the way to the stories that you've inherited around what it means to be a successful person given where you've come from and going, is that actually truthfully who I am or is that what got given to me and what's it going to take for me to go back on my own path? So we've talked about influences at school. We've talked about some influences at home. What about some cultural influences in relation to healthy masculinity? I'm thinking particularly around advertising and the historical messaging that boys have got around advertising. I know you've recently launched a new brand. Tell me the reasoning behind it and why you've done it. Sure. So we would run these and still do run these unbelievable experiences with boys. They'd walk in as like these kind of stiff zombies and they'd walk out free and authentic and just expressed. And then we'd notice that they'd go back to an environment, you know, on their phones or gaming or whatever it was. 
And suddenly we're just inundated with, you know, a lot of violence, a lot of misogyny, very sexualized advertising. And we're like, how does that still exist in 2021? Like, what is going on? And we also, you know, Man Cave's a charity. So we started to think, what would it look like to create a product that aligns to the Man Cave's values that was a separate business that could also create a new funding stream for the Man Cave, but could also be a product that could use the power of brand and consumerism to positively influence this new healthy masculinity that we're all seeking in 2021. So started to think when, you know, I was a teenage boy, I was getting hairier, I was getting smellier. Lynx deodorant, Lynx Africa is oh, the go-to. Okay, and yes. Still <laughs> dominates. my first boyfriend wore that. Yeah, it still dominates. It's still, really? still, I'm like, first of all, that is an achievement. Like okay. the, that smell for that long. But, you know, the advertising that we grew up with, you know, you spray yourself and a flock of gorgeous women come chasing you down the road. And it's like, <laughs> we laugh at that, but that is what's been given to our 11 and 12-year-old boys. Yeah. It's just like, well, we're setting our kid up very subtly, you know, and this advertising, the behavior around that is the building blocks to objectification. Because suddenly if you spray yourself, you know, the women will come chasing you and we wonder where entitlement is born. So for us, we're like, let's create a new personal care brand that's purpose-driven, so it has the man cave as a large shareholder in it, but also use amazing natural ingredients and had fun with marketing, you know, like dancing and free and expressed. And so we've just launched this brand. It's called Stuff, and it's like stuff for your pits, stuff for your face, stuff for your head and body. We're about to introduce a moisturizer and a, a stuff for your mitts, a hand wash. <laughs> Uh, and the whole idea is we didn't want it to be something that was like virtue signaling or showing how woke we yeah. were, but just something that was a really quality product that could kind of fill the gap between, you know, your Lynx and your Rexona and your Dove and something like Aesop. So what's that kind of middle ground? And so we've just launched it about three months ago. It's been in the wild for three months. Feedback's been amazing. People are really receptive of it. And now it's... Um, you know, really kind of taking it to the world and, and getting, hopefully, you know, mums, parents, key grocery buyers in the household to uh, purchase stuff so that it can not only, you know, give healthy products to their kid, but also can support the man cave. So in, you know, a few years' time, some funds kick back in the man cave and we can keep doing what we're doing. And also hopefully shift advertising messaging That's away it. from some of those more traditional, potentially misogynistic uh, messaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we just did a, a bit of research recently and showed that like 80% of guys don't feel represented by what's going on in the media. So it's like, well, there's a massive mismatch then. 80%? Between, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was actually 79%. But okay. yeah, I, right. I, rounded, I, took, I took the extra percent up there, <laughs> rounded it. But um, yeah, there's just such an opportunity there. But it's also uncharted territory because what does it mean to be a good man in 2021? Who are the models we have in public eye that are role modeling? What we've got is our attorney general with allegations of sexual abuse. I know. Defending his own identity and taking no responsibility. I know. It's like that is their highest office of law and that is the role model we've got. And no wonder why we have, you know, Chanel Contos starting this incredible petition because yep. they're sick and tired. And it's like, okay, well, who can these boys look to and that's why I hope you with the Man Cave, we just have this diverse group of facilitators who are guys like, you know, First Nations people, former child soldiers, footy jocks, drama kids, music kids who have lived the diverse experiences of masculinity that then become accessible role models for, for thousands of boys. Mm. In the wake of so many sexual abuse allegations in the media and some of them you mentioned earlier, 
Many boys' schools are taking action. However, some of these have mixed results. One school, for example, asked its male students to stand up in assembly and they were told it was a symbolic gesture of apology for the behaviours of their gender that have hurt or offended girls and women. But after a backlash, the principal admitted that the exercise had been well-intended but inappropriate. Then you've got a Melbourne school where a council youth worker was giving a talk about privilege and asked Year 11 boys to stand if they were white, male and Christian and then told them that they were responsible for being privileged and oppressors. This too caused a backlash and an apology from the school. Hunter, how do we navigate the reckoning and the reform that changes boys' behaviour, but without some of them feeling under siege? And what are the risks for not getting that balance right? Yeah, they're pretty pretty intense examples. And I think the thing that's missing for me inside of all of that is any container of psychological safety. Uh, these boys feel, you know, they're sitting there in assembly and suddenly they're now being called to stand up and then being outed for whether they're conscious of it or not, being part of a system that they've inherited. Yeah. And there may be a lot of truth in what was shared, but when the truth is not in a container of psychological safety and these boys don't understand that they might be complicit in this system, then they check out and they feel Mm. attacked. And Mm. You know, this is the delicate debate of the movement right now, you know, hashtag all men, hashtag not all men, you know. It's tricky because in order for us to move forward, I think there's got to be different different activists that play different roles in the movement. So it's really important that Clementine Ford is bloody angry at men. Like she has to play that role. That's a tiring, tiring role. Mm. But if I think about from a man cave perspective, the way that I would language what we do is we're like the conscious Trojan horse. Okay. So we come in, we look like them, we have the banter, we know what's going on in pop culture. Yeah, you got that relatability with them. Relatability. It's like that cooler cousin at your Christmas get-together. Yeah. That all you want to do is just sit with them and them to ask you how you're going. Yeah. Right? And then that that banter earns the right to have authentic conversations. Because yeah. these teachers, if they're going to deliver something as pointed as that, they have to have a level of integrity and congruence themselves. And often what young people see in their teachers, they don't always see that. that. They don't no. always see that. And that's nothing against teachers. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's a tricky balance because, as I said, there might be some truth in what they've done there. Yeah. The intention might be good and true, but the execution has yeah. poorly missed the mark. Yeah, imagine how you would feel. I'm, I'm just putting myself back in my school assembly being told to stand up for something that, hey, I had nothing to do with this. Like you would straight away get into that defensive and then you walk away either feeling angry, either feeling shameful or feeling confused so you retreat. I think the other piece inside of this is that parents, and it's also really interesting, particularly a lot of mums are really hesitant of putting their sons in an environment where their sons might be susceptible to behaviours that are not aligned with their family values. So we just had a, a interview with The Project that just aired yeah. recently. Oh, congratulations. And thanks. Yeah, amazing to get that. Wow. And part of that, we were going to interview teenage boys to just get their unfiltered beliefs, yeah. what's going on in the movement. It was so hard to get parents to give their boys permission to speak openly and freely because they didn't want their child to be cancelled effectively. Wow. And it's like, well, that's the issue in a nutshell because we see that same thing happening in boardrooms where men are not stepping into this conversation because they're so fearful of saying something that's seen as politically incorrect 
them getting judged unfairly and then cancelled and they lose their job. And so what do they do? They don't contribute and thereby perpetuate the behaviours that we're trying to eradicate. And it's tricky because women have carried so much of this movement already. And so it's almost at times going, do women have to take another step back? Can men step forward and do their Mm. own education? Mm. And I actually just think that's the answer. There's this silent majority of guys that want to be good men in today's society, but they're trying to find their access points into what that actually looks like. But it's challenging when their social structures of their friendship groups or their work groups or their boardrooms, their culture is in a certain way. And so it's really risky for them to put their identity on the line to change that culture because if they do it poorly, then they get kicked out of the group and they're left in no man's land. It's it's funny here. The whole way through today, hearing you talking, I was thinking one missing piece we have is that what you just referred to as cool cousin is those influencers, probably male role models, I think, with these young boys, whether it's the coach, whether it's an older guy that, you know, might have some kind of relationship with the child that the parents trust them to hang out with, but also is a good person that has values that align. And I think that a lot of parents are hesitant to allow those relationships to form for for good reasons, but I think that that has been missing, that mentorship, and that's what your program does. But wouldn't it be great if we could find those lighthouse young men to support our boys? Absolutely. It's, you know, the saying it takes a community to raise a child has come from somewhere. (laughs) And and it's absolutely truthful. And the reality is the community centres that we used to attend en masse, whether it was, you know, the church, the synagogue, the mosque, the town hall, are not attended to the same level as what they were. And we also know that young people are playing less sport than ever before. So where they used to seek their diverse mentorship is now really limited and it's mostly on their phones, if anything, yeah. where they're on TikTok, where the algorithm's just giving them more things that'll hijack their amygdala. Yeah. And what we see is that when, particularly when they're 12, 13, 14, they break away from their parents and they seek guidance, mentoring, and identity they elsewhere. They need that. That's it. Where they used to get it from the uncles, the aunties, and people in community, but now, again, we live in such a secular individual society that they're not getting that. And so how do we, and it comes back to what you're saying around the rite of passage, the idea behind the rite of passage is they get taken away from their family environment, their parental structure by elders, taken to go through an initiatory experience where they let go of behaviours that are no longer serving them, then they step into and create their own version of what it means to be a healthy adult. Then the community welcomes them back. Now, we're so hesitant in modern society to put our kids in any environment that challenges their resilience. And so we know that adversity shapes culture, shapes also their identity and their resilience, But as parents, we need to give them a bit more leash to step into those environments to find out who they are when no one's looking. I wish they could make your program part of the curriculum because in in modern society, there is no real clear rite of passage from boys to men. There is no, you know, process that, that boys went through back in the tribal days where they had to, you know, go out in the wild for three weeks and fend for themselves, whatever it is. There is no clear defined rite of passage. And I think what you're doing with the man cave is is that passage. Are we going to see this in all the schools? How quickly can you roll out? I know you're in Victoria, you're in New South Wales. Yeah, that's that's the game plan. You're so, just rolling out as fast as you can. Yeah, well, to be honest, we, we just need government support right now. And so we, we've, today we've um, worked with philanthropists and high net worth individuals and we charge schools based on their socioeconomic status 
And now the next phase is for us, how do we open up the doors for, for government to really kind of supercharge what we're doing? Because, you know, every week there's international demand for, for what we're doing. Uh, and that's really because we take a strength-based approach to working with young men. We don't yep. see them as a problem to be solved. We see them as these amazing, amazing assets. And we just bring out the best in them. And I think that's what's missing in mainstream public conversation. Finally. For a parent listening to this podcast, what is one conversation starter they can have with their tween or teen to help end toxic masculinity? Mm. First question that came to me was asking your child, how can I be a better parent? Putting it back on us. I like that. I love that. Oh, this has just been such a rich conversation. Mums, I know you will have got so much out of this. Hunter, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips. Producer, Tina Matalov. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. For more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au. If you like my podcast or think other mums might find it helpful, please spread the word by sharing a link to your network of fellow mums. And feel free to drop me a line on Instagram anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Listener.